We're going to be back in the Gospel of John this morning. Uh, we are, we are going to be looking at wrapping up the first section in John that takes us through the end of chapter 4 before we take a couple of weeks of break. So I'm going to be out of town most of this week at a conference, and we have a, a guest who will be preaching for us next Sunday, uh, Bill Maynard, who is an elder at Grace Community Church, the, the church that sponsored ours a few years back. He's an elder who has preached here at least once a year for the past two or three years. Um, I know if you remember that, you'll look forward to hearing him next week. He'll be with us. And then the week after, of course, is Easter. So we're still going to be in John, but we're going to take a break from our uh, next passage in order to consider John's message about the resurrection. Because he, as much as any other New Testament author, is all about the resurrection. In fact, our passage this morning is even tied to that theme. One of John's favorite themes to talk about is life. The fact that in Jesus, you can have it. The fact that apart from Jesus, doesn't exist. This is our first hint, actually. In this passage we're going to look at this morning, is our first hint towards a theme that's going to be developed in full throughout the rest of the gospel, that Jesus came because of death, and Jesus came to give life. What we're looking at this morning is another one of Jesus' signs. So, because this is, the, this is the second sign that we've come to, I want to remind you what we said that when we came to the first one. And if you're, if you're familiar at all with, with Christianity, chances are you're somewhat familiar with the Gospels. They're the first four books in the New Testament, and they're the ones that tell us stories about Jesus' life. They record stories that he, about things that he did. They record sections of teaching so that we get a sense of what he believed, what he taught, what he, how he understood himself and his purpose here. And all the Gospels, all four of them, include lots of miracle stories where Jesus is doing incredible things that suspend the laws of nature and show that heaven is breaking into earth. But what we said when we came to the first one of these stories in John is that John doesn't just tell us miracle stories. One of the uniquenesses of his book is that he relays not miracles but signs. He calls them signs. And the reason he calls them signs is that he hasn't just chosen to tell us every amazing thing Jesus ever did. He's chosen a subset of the things Jesus did. He's chosen very specifically certain things he wanted to tell us about. And the reason he chose the things that he chose is because there's something about these actions, these miracles, that picture for us the purpose of Jesus' coming. They're like parables, one author put it. That Jesus' miracle stories in John, these signs, are kind of like parables in themselves, even though they actually happen. They're not just stories. They're like parables that picture the nature of his whole work. Well, we come to the second sign. John tells us that. He makes sure we notice it. At the end of the story we're about to read together, he says this was the second sign that Jesus did. So one of the things we're going to be asking here and every time we come across one of these signs is what is it about Jesus' work that we get pictured here? Besides just the fact that he has raw power, what is it that we're supposed to take from this story about the nature of his work on the whole? We're going to ask that. But I think there's, even, there's an even more prominent theme in this story. It, that that, that if, you could t- if, if a miracle story was ever not about the miracle itself, this would, be, this would be that one. This story's main theme is about is faith. is about what it looks like to respond to Jesus poorly and to respond to Jesus well. That's one of the things John talks about over and over throughout his book. What He gives us case studies, if you will, in how people heard and responded to the claims that Jesus made and the things that Jesus did. And that's the driving force of the story we're about to read together. 
it begins with a negative picture of faith, what I'm going to call false faith this morning. So we get a chance to look at some people who looked like they believed in Jesus, but who Jesus knew didn't really believe in him. What is it to respond, to look like you're responding well to Jesus and not respond to him well? How can we protect ourselves from being deceived? That's the first part of the story that we're going to focus on. And then we get a look at true faith, at what it looks like to respond to Jesus well, to respond to Jesus in a way that is saving, in a way that gets for you everything that Jesus came to give you. We're going to look at false faith and true faith this morning through this story in John chapter 4. I want to begin by reading it. So if you would, please stand with me now in honor of God's word while I read from uh, John chapter 4. I'm going to start in verse 43 uh, and read all the way through the end of the chapter in verse 54. This is the word of the Lord. After the two days, he departed for Galilee. For Jesus himself had testified that a prophet has no honor in his own hometown. So when Jesus came to Galilee, the Galileans welcomed him having seen all that he'd done in Jerusalem at the feast, for they too had gone to the feast. So he came again to Cana in Galilee, where he'd made the water wine. And at Capernaum, there was an official whose son was ill. When this man heard that Jesus had come from Judea to Galilee, he went to him and asked him to come down and heal his son, for he was at the point of death. So Jesus said to him, Unless you see signs and wonders... You will not believe. The official said to him, Sir, come down before my child dies. Jesus said to him, Go, your son will live. The man believed the word that Jesus spoke to him and went on his way. And as he was going down, his servants met him and told him that his son was recovering. So he asked him the hour when he began to get better, and they said to him, Yesterday, at the seventh hour, the fever left him. The father knew that was the hour when Jesus had said to him, Your son will live. And he himself believed in all his household. This was now the second sign that Jesus did when he had come from Judea to Galilee. This is the word of the Lord. You can be seated. I think the beginning of this story is meant to point us and warn us, point us to and warn us of a false faith in Jesus. The story picks up as Jesus has finished a brief stay in Samaria. We talked about that the last couple of weeks. In Samaria, his message was very well received. Better received than it had been so far to this point. The Samaritans got who he was and responded to him well. But now he's pulling out. And there are several strange details in the setup for this story. Maybe you didn't catch them with one reading. I want to point them out to you because we need to understand, we need to see these details if we're going to see the point of the story. Several strange details. The first strange detail, what alerts us that we've got something to figure out with this passage is that is, is the reason that John gives us for Jesus' decision to leave Samaria and go to Galilee. So did you see in verse in verse uh, 43, it says, After two days, staying in Samaria, he departed for Galilee. Then verse 44 gives us the reason. For, or because, the reason he left Samaria and went to Galilee is that a prophet doesn't have any honor in his hometown. Now, the most natural way to read that, I think, is, well, he's getting out of Dodge because he's not getting any honor where he is. But we know that's not true. The Samaritans loved him. He was a rock star. 
They were telling everybody about him. They were flocking to him, and they actually got it. They knew he was the Savior of the world. So how is this a reason for leaving Samaria? Besides that fact, Samaria is not his hometown. We know he's from Galilee. So in going to Galilee, he's going to his hometown. And the reason he's going to his hometown is that a prophet has no honor in his hometown. So right there, something strange. Jesus is going to a place specifically because he's not going to be honored there. That's strange. It's still strange if you continue on. Because as soon as he gets to Galilee, his hometown, where supposedly he wasn't honored, we're told the Galileans welcomed him. A bunch of them had been up in Jerusalem where he was doing signs. They'd seen what he could do. And now he's back home. He's the hometown hero, you know? They've got the signs and the banners and the parades welcoming him. They're ready for him to come home. They want him to put on his show here among his people. It doesn't look like a prophet receiving no honor in his hometown. It looks like a prophet who's, who's, who's welcomed as this returning hero. They wanted to see more. So do they receive Jesus or not? Aren't they honoring him in his hometown? I think the answer is yes and no. See, in John, in John, very often in his stories, things are not always what they seem. And he loves a good twist of irony. One among the crowd is a father whose son is dying. He's marked here as a royal official, probably somebody who worked for the provincial governor. wasn't actually a king. His name was Herod Antipas. He thought he was a king. People called him a king. He wasn't. It's probably who he was working for there in Galilee. But in his mind, his high status has completely fallen away before his role as the father of a son who is gravely ill. A son who, we're told, is on the point of death. His king, his access to the ear of the man who holds the power, has done nothing to change the reality of his son's sickness. He can nag on Herod Antipas all day, and he's going to get nowhere. He's helpless. But he hears Jesus is in the area. He's at Capernaum. Jesus is in Cana. They're not that far away. Word reaches him and he runs to Jesus. The text doesn't say that, but you can imagine it. You can know, if you have children of your own, you know what you'd be doing in that scenario. He runs straight to Jesus, looking for a miracle. And Jesus' response is so strange, isn't it? In verse 48, the official comes down, asks Jesus to heal his son. We don't get the exact quote, but we know he's asked him. And Jesus says, unless you see signs and wonders, you won't believe. At least that's how we read it in our heads, isn't it? It seems so cold, so off-putting, and so strange, if that is how we're supposed to read it, given the fact that a couple verses later, he actually heals him. Does it look like Jesus is just... Responding to a nagging. Again, we, had, we saw this earlier in, in one of the earlier miracles. And I don't think that's how we're meant to read it. I think it's natural to read it that way. I don't think we're supposed to. And here's one reason why. The you here, in Jesus' quote, unless you see signs and wonders, it's a plural you. He's talking to the crowd. He's not talking to the Father. The Father's there. He's responding to the Father. 
but he's talking to the Galileans who have welcomed him. He's looking at this crowd who has come for a show. And he says to the crowd, you, plural, you won't believe unless you see signs and wonders. He'll get to the Father in a moment. For now, his concern is faith. With what faith is. And the problem with a faith that rests only on signs. Now the picture's starting to clear up for us. Now the picture's clearing up. We're starting to see how Jesus could come to his hometown, be welcomed like a rock star in his hometown, and still receive no honor. His welcome is shallow. It's self-serving. It's blind, maybe more than anything else. The welcome the Galileans give him, that welcome is blind to the true significance of Jesus and what he came to offer them. Jesus knows what's in them. We've seen that already. Back in chapter 2, same thing. Jesus is in Jerusalem. He's doing all these signs. People are flocking to him. And John tells us Jesus did not give himself to them because he knows what's in man. He knows what they're looking for. And he knows what they're looking for is not what he came to give them. But what is the problem? We've seen John tell us stories that are critical of a faith that's based only on signs. But what is really the problem? With, with believing in Jesus based on something amazing that Jesus has done. What makes this sort of faith weak? Is, is looking for evidence a bad thing? Why did Jesus do these sort of miracles if he didn't want people to believe in him because of them? That's the key, I think. We've got to understand that before we move on. I don't think evidence is a bad thing. John tells us himself in this book, at the very end of it, when he's sort of looking back and saying, here's why I wrote what I wrote, he says himself, the reason I wrote this book is to convince you to believe that Jesus is the Christ. I want to give you reasons to stake your life on this man. It's a book full of evidence, trying to persuade people to think something and believe something. Evidence isn't the problem. It's entirely natural for us as humans to want to know why you can trust something. I think it's hardwired into us. It's what we do. We question, we push, we wonder, we evaluate. We want to know before we buy whether the thing is going to be worth the cost. And I think that's entirely appropriate. In fact, I think there is great evidence for Christianity. In particular, probably because we're in Easter season here, just about to celebrate Easter in a couple of weeks, let me tell you that if you're looking for evidence about Christianity, if you want to weigh it as you might weigh any other religion, I think the place to start is the resurrection of Jesus. I think there is incredibly convincing evidence, powerful stuff for the resurrection of Jesus. And that once you become convinced that Jesus is alive even though he really did die, once you become convinced that he's alive now, that everything else falls into place. You really got to start here. If he's alive, then he has the right to command. He has an authority that others don't have. And even if there are things about Christianity that turn your stomach... You sort of just fall in with those. Because if he's alive and promises he can make me alive, then I submit myself to him. He's bigger than I am. There's a freedom to that. And the resurrection is the place to start. There's great evidence for it. I'd love to, love to point you to a couple of things you could read if you're interested. Evidence is not the problem. 
Now, what's, what John is critical of here, what John is critical of here is not the need for evidence in general, but a particular kind of demand for evidence. And a demand for evidence of a particular kind. He's critical of a particular kind of demand for evidence. And he's critical of a demand for evidence of a particular kind. What these people want, these Galileans, and how they want it, is death to a personal relationship with him. And he came to connect them to God. He came for a personal relationship. Now I'm going to have to say a lot more about this before it gets clear. I get that. They want to see his power displayed. They want more and more and more. And that's a problem for a couple of reasons. I'm going to tell you the reasons and try to illustrate them for you. All right, hopefully this will become a little clearer. What's the problem with this sort of faith that's based on science? It's faith that's based only on what you see. And faith that's aimed only at what you already want. It's a faith that would use Jesus as a means to some other end you already have rather than receive Jesus as the solution to a problem he defines and then solves for you. Let me say more about this. most important problem is that faith that's based only on what you see, only on signs and wonders, is unstable. It's never fully at rest. It always leaves you wanting more, more, more. Think of it like, uh, I mean, it's kind of a truism now, particularly in the SEC, that no football coach has job security, right? There is no football coach that has job security because a football coach is beloved. I mean, he's, like a, he's like one of the family as long as the program is successful, but he's always on a short leash. Gene Chizik won a national title for my Auburn Tigers in 2010. That was the first undisputed title that we had enjoyed in 50 years. And two years later, fired. He is jobless today after a title in 2010. And the reason is that we believed in Chiswick until we didn't believe in him anymore. We believed in Chiswick until the signs and the wonders wore off. We believed in him until he stopped winning games, much less championships. This analogy gets us to the second problem with faith that rests only on what you see, right? First problem is that it's unstable. You just got to keep seeing more and more and more and more. But the second problem is that it's ultimately self-serving because what you want to see is your terms fulfilled. We didn't love Chiswick because he was Chiswick, because he was a great guy but because we wanted a championship and he delivered one. And then when he wasn't dependable anymore, he was always a means to an end. He was always a a, a means to getting what we really wanted, right? Faith that's based on signs and wonders on on a particular kind of evidence can mean we just want basically a cosmic butler who's just there to dispense favors to us on request. And that is death to a personal relationship with him. Jesus is calling out the Galileans who seem to honor him on the surface because in their hearts they don't honor him at all. They don't want him. They don't really trust him. And they won't stick with him once the magic runs out. 
Now, the football analogy doesn't work for you. Let me try another one. A couple weeks back, uh, Lindsay and I watched a classic Western called The Big Country. Anybody seen this one, The Big Country? I'm getting like three. Oh, oh wow. It's actually, about five people. That's more than I thought. This one, uh, maybe the 60s, I think, is when it came out. Gregory Peck is who it stars. I'm a sucker for good Western. Always have been. Every Saturday morning, me and my boys watch old 1950s black and white Western reruns. And we love them. And this one was one I had never seen. And it was, I was really, really impressed with it. One of the knocks on Westerns is that a lot of times they're just really simplistic in the kind of world that they present. A lot of them came out during the Cold War. You got the guys with white hats fighting the guys with black hats. There's good and evil is clearly defined. Um, there's, there's still some of that in this big country. But one of the things that, that really amazed me was how nuanced it was in its treatment of these things. The bad guys and the good guys are not who you think they are at the very beginning. It's much more complicated than that. It's a clash of civilizations, but no one's really civilized. It's a great movie. It features Gregory Peck doing his Atticus Finch thing as a cowboy. It features uh, Burl Ives in an amazing role. Burl Ives, the snowman from Rudolph, is, is in this Western, and he is awesome. He is, you, you deserve it. You, just, you owe it to yourself to, uh, to go and watch this. Charlton Heston is in this. Yes, yes, Charlton Heston is in this. It's a great movie. So, so, so the movie, uh, the the, the, the Male Lee, the Gregory Peck character, is this guy who had made his living for, for a while in shipping out east. He was some sort of uh, boat captain or something, I don't know. He had made, made a lot of wealth and was very successful. But at some point he had met and fallen in love with this girl from the west who'd come east just for a short time, and he gets engaged to her, and he decides that he's going to follow her back west to where her family has this huge ranch. So you get this... this uh, Worlds are colliding kind of theme that happens all through the movie. Eastern boy coming to the West in a world that he doesn't know and trying to get acclimated. First day that he's there, he gets picked on by some local bullies. They're riding out to the, to the ranch. They get chased down from behind. They lasso him. They lasso Gregory Peck. Treat him real bad, you know, just, just mocking him, shaming him. And his girl has to defend him. It's his girl that he's come out here to marry that pulls the shotgun and threatens these guys to leave or she's going to, I don't know, blow them to kingdom come. And that really sets the stage for the next hour or so of the movie. It's kind of one after another chest-thumping chance to prove yourself that Gregory Peck lets slide by. They want him to go out and teach these guys a lesson. The girl's father and a lot of the ranch hands get together to go beat these guys up and he won't go with them. He thinks they should just let it go bygones be bygones. He won't ride the crazy horse that no one's ever been able to break. He won't stand up and fight a man who challenges him over this girl that he's come out here to marry. Now what we know as viewers, what's unknown to this girl that he's come out there to marry, is that when no one's looking, he does go out and ride the horse. He breaks the horse that no one else could break, but it was when everyone else was gone. He does go out and fight the guy who challenged him, but it's in the middle of the night when no one else is there to see it. But the girl is all distraught, you know. So she runs to her best friend. And it's the, the best friend is the one Gregory Peck ends up with. And you'll know this within 10 minutes of the movie if you choose to watch it. There's a spoiler for you. She runs to her best friend and she's just wailing and she's, 
she's running down all these things that he's refused to do. He wouldn't ride the horse. He wouldn't go chase after the guys who beat him up. He wouldn't fight for me when he was challenged. And the friend says to her, how many times does a man have to win you? That's good, right? How many times does a man have to win you? And I think what Jesus knows here is that this demand for signs and wonders isn't going away. That if they keep wanting more, it's a sign he's never won them in the first place. They were never with him. They never wanted him. What they wanted, what they wanted was a, a, a tap straight into a power source that could give them the life they already wanted. They didn't want Jesus. The problem with faith that's by sight, whether it's miracles like this one that you could actually see with your eyes, or whether it's in us, and a faith that's dependent on the fact that things are going great right now. The problem is that life is just unpredictable, and things change. And if that's the only reason you're for Jesus is because you think he's given you what you want, then when you don't get what you want, you are not going to want him. That's a false faith that will not save you from death. But thankfully, this story is about true faith. It starts about false faith, but it doesn't stop there. Most of the story is about true faith. The heart of the story is the miraculous power of Jesus. And along the way, we're given a window into what it looks like to believe in him, to claim his power for our own in a way that honors him, that doesn't exploit him, but honors him. In the response of this father to Jesus, we get a look at where true faith rests, the basis for it. If not signs and wonders, what is the basis for true faith? What does it look like? What is it that we're grabbing onto in true faith? And looking a little bit below the surface at the sign that Jesus performs. Remember, these signs are meant to picture something bigger. If we look at the sign and understand what it's pointing us to, we Not just a look into where true faith rests by looking at the Father. But we also get a window into what true faith aims for. What it is true faith looks to. If not just our life as we want it on our terms, what is it that we should be looking to Jesus for? That's what what we get an insight into here from the rest of the story. Let's finish the story together. The father's response to Jesus' pushback is honest and it's desperate. He doesn't take it personally. He doesn't get defensive. He doesn't try to talk Jesus down. He just repeats his request with language that is desperate and deeply personal. It doesn't come through necessarily in the translation. And he says, come before my child dies. It's, it's more like, sir, my little boy. That's the, that's the best translation of it. My little boy is dying. He's not arguing. He's just laying his precious child before Jesus and Jesus hears him. Jesus has compassion on him. And Jesus speaks. Go. Your son will live. Now there's a beauty in that, but there's also a test in that. One commentator put it, this is a stiff test in that Jesus won't come down to his house. But he insists that the man trusts him to heal the son anyway. As this commentator put it, the officer has nothing but Jesus' bare word. 
but he believes. Jesus speaks. Jesus refuses to take even one step towards this boy. But says something outlandish, something unheard of to this point. Nothing about Jesus' ministry so far has given us reason to believe he could bring back someone from the point of death. He's changed water into wine. He's done some other signs that we haven't seen. But this is new territory here. Much less that he could just speak and have it done. This is not, this is not some sort of uh, nature religion where there is belief that healing can come but from certain very precise formulas, certain incantations or uh, physical steps that you take that are meant to tap you into this power. Jesus is not trying to tap into some greater power. Jesus is that power. That's the, imp- that's the implication of the way he addresses the situation. He just speaks. So what he's claiming is, I have words that do what I say. What he's claiming is the power of a creator. The word through whom all things were made and apart from which nothing has been made that is made. Remember chapter 1? That's what Jesus is claiming here. Go, your son will live. Trust me. But he doesn't offer any further proof that he can back up his word. And still the man believes. He hears and he believes his word even though he can't see the effects of Jesus' promise. He just trusts Jesus. Going home, he's met by servants who come to tell him the good news. Your son is recovering. He's trying to do the math in his head. When exactly did he start to recover? Yes, that's when Jesus spoke. He spoke, and my son recovered. He's already believed, but now he's believing on a different level. His whole household is convinced. See, evidence is not a bad thing. Jesus wants to reinforce his faith by showing himself to be true. But his faith is based on more. It pre-exists this beautiful evidence of Jesus' power. It doesn't demand this sort of confirmation. Jesus spoke and the man believed his word. And that is our insight into where true faith rests. True faith rests on Jesus and his word of promise. It's rooted in him personally. It rests in his power to give what's necessary, even if we can't control the effects or the terms. It trusts him to do what's best, even if we can't control him like some sort of genie in a bottle. It's rooted in a confidence in Jesus and in his word that conditions what we see. See, the false faith had a standard that must be met in their plane of vision. What we can see must look like this before we will believe. True faith says these things are true about Jesus and that conditions how I see what I see. It's not I see something, therefore I believe in Jesus. It's I know I can trust Jesus, so these things in my life that don't look like God loves me must not be what they seem. There's one more layer to tease out as we close. I mentioned earlier, we get a look at what, where true faith rests, but we're also pointed by this sign to where true faith aims. So, so if, see, if the false faith rested only on what was seen and aimed at the life they already wanted, whether Jesus could give them what they want, 
then true faith rests on Jesus' word because of who it is that speaks that word. And what it aims for is the life that Jesus promised. Not the life we want, the life we define, but the life that Jesus promises. We're told by John that this is the second sign Jesus has done in Galilee. Remember what a sign is. It's a, it's a parable or a, a signature. It's an overview, or an in, a, a, a window, a clue, a, tre- a clue for a treasure hunt for who Jesus really is. So what's, this, what's the thing that's getting signified here? What are we meant to see about Jesus? What are we supposed to have faith in as we look at this story? This is the crux of the matter. This is what the Galileans missed. It's what many of us miss. N.T. Wright says the Gal- about the Galileans that they are wanting a Messiah who will perform miracles to order rather than moving on to the real faith that will grasp Jesus' hidden identity. You get a similar, a similar picture that comes up later in chapter 7 of John. Jesus' brothers this time are the ones who are in the story. Jesus' brothers are convinced of Jesus' power. They think it's awesome. They feel themselves to be insiders to his movement. And they think he needs to get the word out. Why aren't you doing these miracles on a public stage? Where's your social media campaign? Why haven't you hired an advertising firm? You need to get people on this train. They clearly believe in his miraculous power. But when John tells us about his brothers and their desire that he get the word out about himself, his tagline for it is, they still don't believe in Jesus. That's what he says. Still don't believe in him. So they can believe that he has miraculous power and still not believe in Jesus. What's that about? What they're missing. What we're meant to see from our story and from this book on the whole is that Jesus has not just come to do amazing things. He's come because we're going to die and he wants us to live. And he can give us life. Another commentator pointed out that the one thing that's repeated in our story is the line that the Son will live. When John repeats things, he always means for us to notice them. He wants our attention there. Life is the key to this story. This is our first example of Jesus pushing back on death. And we're going to get a lot more clear teaching on that than what we get in the story. Here we're having to kind of read into it. Because we're told it's a sign. We're told there's more to it than what meets the eye. And this is where he wants our eyes drawn. That, that he can give life where death is coming, where death is encroaching. But the rest of the book is going to, as, as this commentator put it, the overriding theme of the chapters to follow is this theme of life. And the point is that Jesus' words have an unmatched power to grant life. Because Jesus will give his life for his people as a Passover lamb to be slaughtered as a sacrifice that wipes clean the sin that drives us to the grave. And that in his resurrection, we have a promise that we too can live if we trust in him. The point here is that Jesus' words have the power to grant life. Now, where that places us? The call of faith is to believe the words before we see the effects. To trust that with Jesus... With the word who spoke into existence everything that is. 
with the man who could say, go, your son will live, and immediately, miles away, a son is, is restored to life. That with this man, when he tells us he can make us alive, he not only means it, he can deliver. Even if we can't see it. He's promised to make us new. To protect us like a good shepherd who will lay down his own life for his sheep. A good shepherd in light of whom no one can snatch us away. He's promised to satisfy us like living water. To give us a meaningful, full, joyful life. He's promised us many things by his word. The call of faith is to believe what he's promised even when we can't see the effects. Because we trust him. And we know that he can deliver. This is a faith that we can't muster on our own. It is a faith that comes as a gift from the Spirit who gives new birth. So we pray to our Father to give us this faith. Father, we want to believe in Jesus because we know that we can't control our lives, all the things that affect us and the things that affect those that we love. And we know from experience what it is to try to control everything about our lives to try to make ourselves into something that's worthy, to try to protect what we have from fear of seeing it go away. And we know how exhausting and fruitless this kind of work is. When you tell us of streams of living water that satisfy us where nothing else can, our hearts long for the truth of those words. But we struggle to believe. When your word tells us that even death will not end our relationship with you, but that Jesus came to give life, we want that to be true. We want to look to the end of our lives without fear. We want to mourn the passing of those we love without ultimate despair. But what we need is the faith to believe the words Jesus has spoken to us. Give us this faith, Father. Give us this faith, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen.
invite you to go and go and get your children come back and join us for the benediction together <laughs> 